as we do this together. Uh, that we're talking to the Lord, listening to the Lord, as you're listening to the Word of God, and then it explained, do so in prayer. Talk to the Lord about what you're hearing and how it applies in your life. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. A couple of Sundays ago, I was introducing the idea of uh, who an overseer is when the Bible says that it's anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What is that task? And what I was trying to present to you was that there are really two offices in a church according to 1 Timothy 3, and as we see in the New Testament, the deacon, and then this overseer person in 1 Timothy 3. So there's two offices. The deacon is there to help with some of the physical needs of a church body, help preserve the unity of the church in very practical ways. And in the early church, it was done and taking care of the widows, uh, as well as helping distribute the, few, uh, the food that was there. And so there are servants over the physical things, helping protect the unity of the church. Then there's this other uh, position of overseer. I was arguing that the Bible uses three different terms referring to this same office. Uh, the overseer, as we see in 1 Timothy 3, but then you also see the term elder. Uh, and then you also see the word pastor. And I argued from the text that these three terms are interchangeable terms referring to the same office. So you see this in 1 Peter 5, as well as in Acts 20, an example of this, uh, where same groups of people are called elders, overseers, and pastors, and these terms change in and out. I also was presenting that when you see this in the New Testament, in just about every example that you see in the New Testament... It's a group of elders, overseers, pastors that are in a church, a group of them. Uh, and so this is just something we see as a New Testament precedent and the challenge of what that means in our own church body. Uh, do we uh, match what we see in the Bible? And, the, and the, the idea is if all we had to go by to organize our church was the New Testament, would it look like what we know now in Green Pines? And that's a question I just present to us and challenge us to pray through and think through uh, as we study this together. And so I want to move into verse 2 now as we go through verses 2 through 7 and talk about the guidelines uh, for pastors. And so it's always kind of an unusual thing as I'm preaching to myself specifically and you guys are listening in as I talk to myself. <laughs> uh, but there are certainly uh, applications to bring into your life because I, I would say to you that what God asks of his leaders, he asks of all of us in a lot of ways and that these are things that we point toward and we look toward and we desire and we pray for in our own life. Not just the pastor's life, but these are uh, things worth uh, putting into our own life. As well as it tells us specifically how to pray for leaders in our church. Uh, in our church, 
Uh, the pastors uh, by title uh, are myself and Mike Griffin are the ones who have the name that the church has given pastor um, and that we are not just uh, paid by the staff or paid by the church, but there's this title, this authority that the church has granted uh, to myself and Mike. I would pray, perhaps as we study this, that perhaps maybe we need to look toward prayer for other pastors, not so much to paying them, but to recognize who they are in our body. They may very well be here already. They may already meet some of these qualifications. There are. They may be going toward these qualifications. And it may be a wise thing and a biblical thing for us to pray about including them uh, as part of our leadership. And that is something for us to think through and pray through together. And so, um, my father was visiting a pig farm in Duplin County. I don't know if you've ever been to a pig farm. I mean, it's big business, big time money. And so for him to go into the the pig farm, he had to take a shower before he could go in. And after taking a shower, he had to put on a special uniform that is dedicated for this purpose of visiting the pigs. And after visiting the pigs, and I, I can't tell you why he was visiting the pigs. Uh, I don't, I failed to ask that question. Why were you visiting the pigs? And so after visiting the pigs, he had to wash off again and change. And it just struck me, all that is required to go into a pig farm of today. I mean, this is not my grandfather's pig farm. Uh, this is something different from that. And, and so... Uh, I thought, you know, why is that the case? Well, because they're handling food. They're handling money. (laughs) And a lot of money. And so when you are charged with taking care of somebody's food, and it involves so much money, then there are special precautions that are used because of what's at risk. And I thought, you know, if that's true, then when I read 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, and it says you... I, this is written that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, God's family, which is the church of the living God. This is the living God's church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. If it is true that we have guidelines in handling food and dealing with pigs, how much more is it true that there are guidelines for us in dealing with God's house as being a part of God's house, but even more so those who the Bible sets apart as as having some leadership, of having some overseeing responsibilities, of, of having the task of feeding and nurturing the church, God's family. And so, yes, right before that verse of this 15, there is a list of guidelines for those who are in the position of leadership, of influence in church, be it through deacons or overseers. And the sad reality is that there are many, many people who are not wanting to follow the Lord because they've seen a pastor. They've seen a deacon. And they said to themselves, if that's what it means to be a leader in the church, then I don't want the church. I don't want Christ. And that's just the sad reality. 
And it doesn't take long to read the news or to listen to the gossips of the community to find out where the problems are in churches with the pastors. There is ample supply. I don't even need to introduce a story to you. All of you have a story of some failing of leaders and pastors. So what are Christ-like guides for pastors in God's church? I want to read this text to you, and I think we'll see that there's four main areas of a pastor's life that are to be guides, to be Christ-like guides that we're to look toward. And so, in honor of this being God's Word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For someone does not know how to manage his own household. How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You may be seated. So when we look at God's guides in these four areas of a pastor's life, as we read in verse 2 and 3, we see a listing of a lot of external conduct, things that can be observed. And to be honest with you, as we read these, very few of them are really Christian. There are good qualities, but you wouldn't necessarily call them Christian. In other words, you could see these same qualities in other people who may not be a Christian. Uh, they, they are good for uh, leaders in schools and teachers. They're good for various CEOs and, and other uh, offices. They're good for police. Uh, and, and, and so uh, when we think about it, a lot of times when we come across failings and scandals and political offices and other places, a lot of times it's because there's a violation of some of these standards. And so I think that what Paul is bringing out here is that these are observable standards that are, uh, well, if the world expects them out of their leaders, how much more should they also be in church leaders? And so he brings this out. And this is part of our own church's ability to communicate to a watching world. So, first of all, he says in verse 2 and 3 that God desires control in observable observable behavior. This is the first main area. Those things that can be seen, uh, is there control, some sense of of self-government involved in these observable behaviors? And so he introduces it, and I think it's probably the kind of a a general heading as we come to verse 2, when he says that an overseer must be above reproach. Your translation might say, the word blameless. Uh, and the idea 
of being blameless are above reproach is that it's not that you never do anything wrong because then, well, we're all out. Um, it's not that we don't ever do wrong, but we make right the wrongs. There is a desire to make right the wrongs in our life. And the, the idea is, is to, you can't get a hold on this person. If you're trying to uh, lay some accusation on them, it, it's like trying to uh, catch a lizard. And the lizard's just too fast. And, and uh, you can't quite get a hold on it. And so it's that same idea, literally, of, of blamelessness, that there's no way of grasping on them. Uh, so you can't attack the behavior because they do not have a, a platform to attack on. So how is this done specifically? Well, you know, Proverbs 16, verse 32 has a good word of advice. It says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. And it puts that out there as some sense of control of yourself. If, if, if you don't have a grasp of your emotions, specifically anger and losing your temper, well, you can do some things. If, if, if that's not the case, you can do some things that are rash. You can say things that are endangering to others, to yourself, that hurts. Uh, and you can do things. Uh, that will hurt and bring accusation. I've been thankful to have a wife in my life that will put a check on me every once in a while. And I say, you, you really want to say that? <laughs> you, you really going to type that out? You really going to put that out online? No. You better think about that one. <laughs> and she's right. And anytime that's happened, she's right. And so what I have lacked, my wife has helped me in. Uh, but that is, uh, the, the idea is that you make right the wrongs. And so it's a general heading, and then he goes into specific areas in, your, in a person's life. Uh, and so he, he starts off, uh, as we read, it says, uh, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Um, this has been argued that it's talking about polygamy, but polygamy, even in that day and age, really wasn't uh, that rampant, and it was pretty well understood that that was a wrong thing. It's, it's more than just polygamy. Uh, and it's, it's, it's more than just whether or not divorce is in the background or not. Uh, and it's not really the, the, the point of that word. The idea is, is probably even more deep, is that it is that you, you are a one-woman type of man. Pastors are not to be flirtatious. That's just not becoming... Because they are to be people who are one woman type of people. That in their heart they say to themselves, there's one woman. And that there is a yes to her and a no to everyone else. It's a commitment that's been made. It is something that is observable. You can tell when folks are not one woman men, can't you? It becomes pretty obvious. The signs are put out there. There's interests, whether it's in the flirtations uh, of a person. Uh, it is a very obvious manner. And so, when it comes time to the church, this is something that God is wanting in us as leaders, to be this type of men. And I would say, this is not just to the pastors. <laughs> okay, that's why I say this is something that's true for everyone. And you can say, oh, whew, I'm glad it doesn't apply to me. No, 
This is Christ-likeness. It is a, a message that is to be said to a watching world. If Christ is in your life, and if you're married, that this is the case to be one woman type of people. And then we go on, and we keep on reading. He says, uh, sober-minded. Sober-minded. And so it's, it's the idea of, of, of vigilance, of, of temperance in your life. It, it rules out excess, uh, that you're stable in your life. You're not given to rash actions. Uh, there is some, some balance in your life. And this kind of goes along with, with self-control, of, of being sincere. And you're not a flighty personality. There's some sensibility about you uh, that, that is there. And so it goes on and says, of, of good behavior, uh, that we are uh, respectable with our behavior. The idea is that there's an orderly reflection of inner stability in our life. That God can put in our life. And, and here's the thing, guys. We can do this, and people who do not know Christ can do this. And they can morph themselves and conform themselves out of self-discipline. But pride is the motivation. The difference between the Christian is that love for God and love of God is the motivation here. And that it becomes a fruit of the Spirit that we become obsessed by some, I remember one of my English professors put out, discipline is passion. And that's true. Discipline is passion. And the thing is that for most of the people, when they're disciplined, there's passion in about themselves, usually, to be somebody. But for the believer and for the leader of, of faith, it is to be passionate about Christ, to be passionate about the Lord, and that it changes us. And that there will be an external observation of this. The problem is that for many pastors, you don't necessarily know. Is it passion for Christ? Or is it a desire to succeed? It's hard. It's hard to figure out which one it is. And so we go through and we look at this and says, all right, uh, we are to be self-controlled, respectable, Hospital, given to hospitality. And so in that day and age, persecuted Christians were dependent on people assisting others and helping others and making them feel at home. And that is something that is to be that, uh, you know, pastors are to love people. <laughs> and sometimes that's a challenge. You know that, right? Sometimes that's a challenge. But there is to be a love for people a desire to help them, a desire to be with them that God is putting into their life. And so along with this is, is the practical aspects of, of, of hospitality, but also apt to teach. And this is one of the qualities that you don't see in the deacon criteria in just a few verses. Uh, and, and so they've got the mental capacity to order things, to organize things, to present information, present teaching and instruction so that you get it. One of my biggest compliments uh, when I'm teaching is when someone would come up and say, you know, that was easy to understand. Then I know I did my job, one of my jobs of just helping you understand it. It's one of my goals. Not so much to be complicated, not so much to be alliterated, <laughs> but let it be easy to understand. That you get it, you understand it. 
And yet you see that it comes from Scripture. And so there is the, the obviously the, the gifting to do that, communication, the teaching on a large scale like this, but also in the one-on-one scales. Sometimes it's the correction, sometimes it's the rebuking that has to take place uh, to, to note what error is and to reveal it for what it is. And so this is a part of what a, a pastor, an overseer, because this is God's house, this is a pillar and buttress of truth, According to 1 Timothy 3.15, and so there needs to be people to communicate that truth of the Word of God. And so we keep on reading and, and we look through here and, and see what else is here. Well, verse 3, not a drunkard, not given to wine, some translations might say. You're, you're not addicted. You can control the thirst for alcohol. All right? You can control the thirst for alcohol. In fact, it's interesting, I, you know, that... In our day and age, most of us who grew up in church, that's not nearly as strict as we like it to be, is it? Uh, we want it to be, you abstain from alcohol. Uh, but this just clearly simply says that you're not a drunkard. Interesting enough, you got 1 Timothy 5.23 in addition to that, where he is given instruction to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So the same book here uh, that he's giving this instruction to. Um, I want you to know I don't drink alcohol, okay? Um, and so I found that for me, it's a lot easier battle to not be given to wine if I just don't drink wine. Um, it's just that way I don't have to struggle with it. Uh, I can put my energy toward other things. Uh, and so, I would say also that it's not just alcohol, but perhaps anything else that could numb your brain uh, and, and put you in a stupor. And so, just because someone said, well, the Bible doesn't talk about not using drugs, I would say, well, you know, alcohol has that same effect of numbing your brain. And so, this is not... Uh, a provision for us to go into other medicinal avenues for us to numb our brains uh, and not to be addicted to these things. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I struggle with coffee a little bit. <laughs> so, um, I, I, just, I don't want to be addicted to it, and I'm afraid I might be. So, uh, there's this, this control of thirst. And we keep on reading here, and, and we find something else. It's, it says that you're uh, not violent, not violent, but gentle. And so uh, you're not, you know, a striker, maybe is what your translation, you're not quick-tempered. You, you, don't, you don't bully. I'm not going to get my way among people by threatening you with violence, all right? Um, that sounds absurd, but it happens, okay? It happens. Uh, and, and so it's not to see that as a, an avenue uh, to, to do that, to be quick-tempered. I'll never forget my dad telling me that he was reading through this, and he came to this, this verse, this phrase, and he said, well, I don't ever have to deal with that. And then that week, someone in the grocery store follows him and hits him over the head with a bottle. And he got up, and his first thought is, I'm going to chase him. The second thought is, oh, yeah, I remember that verse. I'm praying that doesn't happen to me, all right? Um, but we don't see that as the, the option for us. We're not going to get away by doing this. 
And, and so we, we keep on reading here and it says, uh, not uh, quarrelsome. And I think this goes hand in hand with, with not being violent, but it also is the verbal aspect of it. Uh, not picking fights, not seeking these debates about silly things and, and, and to be that type of quarrelsome personality. Um, but the contrast to that is gentle. No, no unnecessary roughness. And, and I think of ophthalmologists. Ophthalmologists. You know what? Those are the guys that work with your eyes. I have a thing about my eyes. I, I struggle with contacts. That's why I'm wearing glasses. And I don't like anybody sticking things in my eyes. And so I don't frequent the eye doctor much for that very reason. But if I do, I want someone who's gentle gentle, unnecessary roughness. Get that out. You're, you're dealing with sensitive things in my eye. All right. And so when we're talking about spiritual matters in our church life as well, it's helpful for it to be done in gentle manners. Let it be received. And let it not be rejected simply by the manner in which it was done. And so the gentleness comes in. And then we, we keep on reading and, and it says, not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Not covetousness. Uh, that you're not in this for the money. And trying to figure out all the benefits that's possible you can get and how we can uh, get money. And that's one of the things that... Watch what you see on TV. Those who claim pastor. Sometimes the message they're putting out there is not the message of the Bible. Be leery of the constant appeals for money. And all the blessings they promised because you gave to them. Major flag. Major flag. And so, in these observable behaviors, it's just listed out here, there is to be control in these observable behaviors. And that is the kind of the chief um, general quality of all these specific things, is that there's some sense of control in their life. But as we keep on reading, we find that there's another area in verse 4 and 5. And that is that God desires... Compassionate authority in the family. God desires compassionate authority in the family of those who would lead in a church. You remember, go down to verse 15 real quick, chapter 3, verse 15. He says, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That is uh, the word for family of God. Very specific language that he calls this church God's family. So consequently, verse 4, anyone who is an overseer in God's Household must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so it's, it's more than just obedience being emphasized in, in that home, but obedience done with respect. That the, uh, the family uh, of the pastor is, is somewhat of a, of a learning place where if that person is not able to work with his family, not able to manage his family, then how will he be able to work in God's house? What's being said? The same skills and abilities used in managing a family is the same skills and abilities used in a church family. So, several things here. We live in a day and age where people are looking for business degrees, for pastors. And I don't doubt there's going to be use of organizational skills, but 
we must keep in mind a church is not a business, is not an organization. It is an organism. It is a family. And when the Bible puts out criteria, it doesn't bring out the business degrees. It brings out the family degree. What's the criteria? How do they work with their family? So, it's relational. Being able to work with people. But it also has a, an, an, another message. The priority of my family. And the priority of families of pastors. If myself or Mike having major issues with our family and we're not able to lead in our family, we're not able to influence in our family, we're not able to live in such a way and live with them in such a way where they want to be obedient and respectful, then we have disqualified ourselves as leaders in the church. Am I exaggerating? Is, is that right here in the scripture? I'm reading it. He must manage his own household will with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Let me just tell you about a danger. If a church expects one person to do the job of deacon and overseer, if the church expects that one person to help with the physical needs of the church body, be it the widows, helping with the unity of the church, and feed, nurture, spiritual truth of the church, help oversee that church, then they have laid upon that one person things that the Bible have taught to be spread, apart, spread off around among the deacons and the elders. And it shouldn't be too much of a surprise if in that living up to those expectations, that one person is not able to manage his household. And the church loses out for it. The family loses out, the pastor loses out for it because the expectation is placed upon one person. And I just want us to look at the Word of God and I'm not saying that our church does that. I think some in our church do that. And there's a lot of danger in that. If I can't put the time in to be the husband and the father, then I shouldn't put the time in to be the pastor. How can I pastor you if I can't pastor my wife and my kids? And the question brings out, you can't. You can't. I've heard of saying, rules without relationship brings rebellion. And so when I sense there's times of rebellion in our home, then I know that the best thing that's needed is for me to have more time with them. More time with them. Now, what does the person do who, though that parent puts in the time, the children is bent on rebellion? 
I think you see a case like that in Eli in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel, uh, where Eli, though was a priest, did not care for his sons. And the, the rebuke that God had for Eli wasn't just that his sons were in rebellion, but that the dad did nothing toward his sons in rebellion, that he did not even speak. He did not bring any correction and instruction. And so it wasn't so much on just the rebellion of the sons, but that the dad wasn't there as a corrector. Now, obedience is very important for our home. And it's not so just to get the kids to do what I want them to do. We learned as we studied the Ten Commandments that we are to honor a father and mother And that in honoring our father and mother, we honor God. So, with Canaan and Evan especially, um, it's constant. Just constant emphasis on obedience. So they're always challenging it. Always challenging it. And so, it would be wrong for us to wait until they break the rules or break the obedience and rebellion so many times that we just get fed up and we lash out. That's not right. Because the first time they were disobedient was the problem. Because the first time they were disobedient, it wasn't just an insult to me. It was an issue between God and themselves. And so there must be correction the first time there's disobedience because it's... I've, I've... carrying the weight of God's authority. And I may not feel like it. I may be sad for him. And I may be thinking, oh, poor little guy, he's so cute, you know. Um, But there's disobedience. And it's the issue of of saying to to Evan more than Canaan, because Canaan's just not there yet, but just say, you know what? I've got to do this. I've got to correct you. It's that type of correction that's consistent, that is about God, and not about just getting your way or that you're getting on my nerves, that can engender a dignity with it. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Because there's going to be times in the church's life where somebody just is bent against God, and they try to spread that, and I may like them. And they may be a dear friend, but every once in a while there must be a statement sometimes that says, you know, I'm in fear of your soul. This is between you and God and there's implications rippling out into our church. And to be able to say that, to be able to do that in a gentle, loving, but yet true way, firm way. For someone does not know how to manage his own household, how we care for God's church. I have been very grateful that the church has allowed me Fridays off. And those are times where we just sometimes do nothing. Sometimes we do something. But just to know in my mind that it's okay these nights that I'm gone because there is a Friday that I'll have with them. And I think we have to be careful as a church body, not just for my sake, but for all of our sakes, They don't have everything going on every night of the week. And for that reason, I don't mind having two, three meetings going on at the same time because that's one night as opposed to three nights. Um, We just need to be careful of that for all of our sake. 
We keep on reading. So God desires compassion and authority in the, in the family. But we keep on and we, and we see verse 6. God desires maturity in Christ. He must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, the condemnation of the devil, it's, I don't think it's just that you enter in the same condemnation that the devil is going to be in. But rather, it's also the condemnation that, that Satan's trying to set you up in. Especially when you look at verse 7. Verse 7 talks about the snare of the devil. I think it's a, a condemnation that the devil is trying to set you into. When I read verse 6 and I read verse 7, how they both end, here's one thing I can get out of this. And you just need to know this. Every elder, pastor, and every Christ-honoring church, Bible-teaching church, is marked by Satan. That's what verse 6 and verse 7 say. Satan is trying to set him up into condemnation and in a snare, and it is ongoing, constant, continual. It is war. And one of the areas I feel like our brothers, my brothers, and myself fall into time and time again is verse 6. Conceit, pride. I was, uh, I was talking with my dad, and we were talking about some of the, the groups that go to India. You know, our church has gone to India with Finney and Alpha International, and, and there's usually uh, nurses, uh, medical personnel, some doctors, and then pastors. It's an interesting mix. Um, and I was just talking to my dad, and, and, and he and I were saying, you know, you can always tell the doctors who they are. Um, I said, most of them are very cocky. You know, and I said, there's one that's very humble, and he's just very different. And then it hit me. <laughs> I, said, I told Dad, I said, you know, I think it's true about the pastors, too. <laughs> They're just always cocky. Can't tell them anything. They know everything. Uh, who's laughing? <laughs> um, and it was just kind of this moment of, of clarity. Uh, that Dad and I just was experiencing and saw the similarities there. But I think it is true that the pastoral system in America is filled with pride. In the seminaries, I saw it. It was whoever knew the most. He had the best grades. Competition. Those are the, those are the guys God are going to use. When we gather together as pastors, how many were at church? How many came forward for decisions? What, what kind of offering did you have? What kind of, what kind of buildings do you have? I mean, this is pastor talk. It's not much different from everyday business talk. And that's the problem. Because a lot of that's filled with pride. Some things that have come very clear in my mind is that if we're not careful... Sometimes the Bible ceases to be a mirror. It's just something we study and we expound and we teach. And it ceases to be a mirror. Sometimes worship moves from being a private search for God and private quest to a public duty. I'm the pastor. Yeah, I've got to be there. I've got to put my game face on. And make it a public duty. That, that Christianity becomes a system. 
and not just relationships. That we have a desire to master the content without having a, a craving for the Lord that goes along with it. That we, we can be more concerned about the sins of other people than our own sins. And here's one I'm constantly thinking about. We think that we are mature because we know. We think that we're good Christians because we know the Bible. Because we know books of the Bible, because we've got it memorized, we can tell you who wrote what, when. And we can tell you how one verse fits into the whole system of the Bible. And if we're not careful, we think that we're better Christians because we know. Maturity is not based in what we know, but in what we believe and what we do. What we believe and what we do. Beware. Beware. Going into the trap of thinking you're better, better Christian. You've grown in Christ because you've grown in your knowledge of the Bible. Paul teaches us to pray in the to grow in grace. To grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have the pride of knowing and replaces the humility of being known. The humility of being known. Sometimes you feel like you know me because I tell stories and I talk about the Bible. But you don't always know the things that a pastor struggles with, that I may struggle with. And a church can go fine. There's some things you just don't want to know. But there are problems and struggles in any person's life, including mine. There's things that God is working in my life, and, and he doesn't let me go through a facade. And I'm so thankful that that's the case. And I'm working toward being not just who I present, but who God is working in my life. Are you? Not just what you present, but what is God doing in your life? God desires maturity in Christ. Sometimes we, we can say to ourselves and think, well, you know, God is, is, is blessing a church. I mean, people are coming, they're joining some folks are, coming to the Lord, missionaries are going out, and we just thank God. And we, have, we think that God is blessing and, and stamping an endorsement on our life because he's blessing the church, or vice versa. That is no measurement for a person. God will bless a church because he wants his name to be known, and he'll honor the word of God. How a church grows, or lack thereof, is not necessarily the measurement of God's stamp on a person's life. There will be fruit, yes. But don't confuse fruit with what the world says is success in a church. God desires maturity in Christ. This idea of, of being blinded by conceit, being, it's the, it's the, being puffed up with conceit. Or it's the word, it has the, the image of puffed up of smoke in your eyes. I can't see rightly because I think too much of myself. 
And when people start coming up to you and saying, we did a wonderful job. It just changed my life, changed my perspective. Thank God you're here. You're, I'm so glad you're my pastor. And if you're not careful, you think that's because of you. It's not. God does things like that. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And if anything's done, then it's just because I'm being a servant and that's what servants do to Christ. And there's nothing praiseworthy about that. It's just to be expected. Now, we keep on reading. We find that God desires maturity in Christ. God desires compassion, authority, and family. God desires control and observable behavior. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And the snare of the devil is not just for the pastor, but for the whole church, which is to be the pillar and buttress of truth, the church of the living God. And if God, uh, if, if Satan can put the church in the snare, then, then there is a lack of Christ influence in a community. And that's good for Satan. So he must be well thought of by outsiders. So God desires a good witness, a good testimony in the pastors, the elders, the overseers in a church. So, the sad reality is that there's very few pastors who last in ministry. When you find an old pastor, that's a unique treasure. Because most of them have dropped off the various snares in their life. One of our the pastors that I've had come here found out just a few weeks ago, Larry Grace, no longer in the ministry. What's happened? He went into a snare, lost his testimony, lost his heart for the Lord. Someone I know and trusted and had here. It's happening almost every month I hear a different story. God desires a good good witness. Satan will make sure our failures are publicized. Satan will make sure our failures are publicized. When you see a failure of a brother or sister in Christ, don't do Satan's work. Don't help Satan publicize that. Satan's going to do that. You pray for him. You talk to the Lord about them and you lift them up. The idea, hopefully, is that if you're inviting someone to church out in the community, hopefully they're not deterred because they know me. That's the idea. I don't want folks to have to apologize to someone outside the community because they know me. It's one of the things of doing Taekwondo with the girls. It's allowed me to have a place outside for, I, for me to get to know people because most of my days are here, <laughs> are among you. And when I came to the pastorate, in a lot of ways I left the ministry. The ministry that you have of bringing people to your Christ. My job is to help you do that, to equip you to do that. 
but it gives me a place. And, and it's something that's been interesting for me just to be among others who, who they may or may not know I'm a pastor and just to talk with them. And it's just very cognizant of, of it, of, of these are folks in Nightdale or in the area. And, and when they come to Green Pines, will they be surprised <laughs> after doing taekwondo, taekwondo with them? Will they be surprised to find, oh, he's in a church and he's a pastor? Hopefully, there won't be much shock there. So let me ask you, if I was to meet someone around you who I worked with, neighbors with you, and and I found out that they work with you, I said, oh, they go to my church, they go to Green Pines. Would they respond, wow. I never would have guessed that they go to church. That's happened to me before. It's happened to me before. And I had to apologize to that person. I'm sorry. You've gotten the complete wrong idea about what Christ is and what our church is. Don't be that. Don't do that. Why? I don't want this to be a do better, be better sermon. All right? It goes back to that pig story. If so much precautions are taken because of food and pigs, how much more? We who have been born of God as an assembly called out by Christ, as a household of God, God's family, the living God's church, a pillar and buttress of truth for Nightdale, how much more, because of who Christ is and what He's done and His love in our life, how much more would His love should not impact us? Should it not be observable? Should it not be in our family life? Should it not be in, in our pride or lack thereof and being humbled by the grace of God? Should it not be in our outside witness? And let me, as a pastor, just be one of the first to say, yes, it makes a difference in our family. It makes a difference in our conduct outside, in our witness. It makes a difference in the humility. Church, I just, I sense there's pride in our church. When we tend to cover up and not confess, I think sometimes we think of ourselves maybe more highly than we ought sometimes. Why don't we pray about that? I I can't expect that God's going to give much grace to a a prideful church. And as a pastor, this is very sensitive to me because I'm the pastor. And I'm praying that it's not coming from me. To be born of God is to first say to Christ, I need, I need to be born by you, by God. I need it. Church, do you know you need it? Do you need God's life in you? Let's pray.